We are looking this summer at various doxologies, benedictions, and prayers in the scripture. And this is a doxology, but it serves as a benediction to the one chapter short epistle of Jude. Of course, Jude's real name was Judas, but you know how unfortunate it would be to have a, a uh, book of the New Testament called Judas. So we know it as Jude, the brother of Jesus, part of the apostolic band in Jerusalem, the brother of James who wrote the book of James. He sets out to write a letter and he wants to kind of bring a little compendium together of the gospel, kind of the essence of the faith that's once delivered to the saints. But he looks around and he sees that there's so many people who have become apostate. That is, they stand apart from the faith. People that have fallen, people that have given up, people that are hostile. And so he writes a very short but uh, uh, acerbic letter to them. And then he offers all the hope in the world in the benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. And as you are seated, reach forth and get your Trinity hymnal, the red book, not the blue one, the red one. I, I'll preach out of the Bible, I'll preach out of the confession, I'll preach out of the hymnal. Turn to page number 858. That's in the very, very back. It's about... 100 pages from the back, 858. As you get there, you should see that you are at the Westminster Confession of Faith. Did you know that was in the back of the hymnal? Well, it's there. It's one of the standards of our church, one of the confessional standards. And you should see chapter 17. Chapter 17. I'm going to use my leather-bound copy, but if you don't have your leather-bound copy, you can read what's in the hymnal. That is, if you can read that tiny a print. <laughs> I looked it over this week, and my, that small print. But it's of the perseverance of the saints. And that's really the subject. And if you'll let me, for about 15 minutes, I want to teach this morning. You've heard of the five points of Calvinism. The fifth point is the perseverance of the saints. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is stated quite succinctly there in that very first paragraph. Read along as I read it to you. Of the perseverance of the saints, they whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere in grace to the end and be eternally saved. What a marvelous statement. What a bold statement. Sounds almost presumptive. 
Sounds almost just a little too confident. Except that we'll see in just a moment as we read paragraphs 2 and 3 that it is a scriptural assertion. Now there's one phrase in there that might be a little um, questionable to you in terms of exactly what it means, but it is in that third line down. Uh, well, in my text it is, shall neither, can neither, totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace. The state means the status, the position. And that's really what we're looking at here in this particular lesson. We're looking at two statuses or two stations or two things that happen to people. One is you stumble and fall. The other is you stand, stay upright. The text that we read, the, the benediction, says to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. That's what the Lord does. He keeps us from stumbling such that we fall and fall away. And to him who is able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. The word present is not in the text. It's actually the word stand or stand up. In other words, the meaning is this. It's the same meaning that's in your text. It's just that the literal wording is he is able to make you stand up in his presence, in his glory, in your glorified state. Finally, at the end, in glory with the Lord, we will be standing up blameless. In order to bring us to that state and to that status, the Lord had to do quite a bit of work. The term state of grace is kind of a technical term that is used in scholastic theology, especially Protestant scholastic theology. Let me just briefly outline the states of mankind or the states of humanity as it is considered by classical scholastic Protestantism, especially Reformed faith. Man finds himself in five states over the course of time. The first state was the state of innocence. It was that created state into which Adam and Eve were brought. They were created by God, the Bible says, upright and innocent before the Lord. They stood up in the presence of the Lord, upright, blameless, free from all guilt and all stain. But then when God gave them a commandment, thou shalt not eat of the fruit of the tree, when he gave them a commandment, he gave them, he put them in a state of probation. They were in a probative state. That is, they were in a state to where it depended on what they did as to what their standing would be. And in that state of probation, they were with commandment. They heard, a thou shalt not. And they were obligated to obey that commandment. You know the story, Genesis 3. They sinned, they ate of the fruit, and they then fell. A stumble and a fall. 
laps fall, and they fell into yet another state. This time, it's the state of sin. The state of sin, the state of condemnation, the state of guilt, the state of rebellion. And they incurred a penalty that had been stated, and that is they died. They surely died. They died spiritually, which required now the Lord to step in and to do a work. And he promised that he would send the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman would come and would effect a redemption, would restore. And this is precisely what God did in Christ by sending his only begotten son to deal with the sin issue. He put them into a state of grace. into a state of grace. And that's what's referenced here in our text. We're now in a state of grace. It is a state where we have been raised from death to life spiritually. The body has yet to die. But spiritually, we've been made alive in Christ by the Holy Spirit through regeneration, through new birth, through new creation. We enjoy a new state. It's not like innocence and uprightness. It's not like probation, but thank God it's not like sin. We're not considered in a state of sin. For what Christ has done in our place and on our behalf, His work has been reckoned, accounted, imputed to us, and now we stand in a state of grace. That's why when we sing about grace, we say it's amazing. Because it is. The work of grace that God has done has been such an effective work that it's brought us into a new state. The next state that we will enjoy is the state of glory. That is, one day we'll be in the presence of the Lord, as our text said, in a state of glory. We'll be in the presence of His glory. This is the state where not only has the soul been raised from death to life by new creation and new birth and resurrection, but our soul completely and now our body has been redeemed from the penalty of death and has been raised to live eternally. And we will be forever in the presence of the Lord in a state of glory. Peter has an interesting way of sort of expressing it, reading in... Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, he's admonishing the Christians, Therefore, brothers, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, and he's been outlining them, godliness, brotherly affection, steadfastness, self-control, knowledge, virtue, faith, and a few others there in that chapter in, first, in 2 Peter 1. Therefore, brothers, be the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Think about that. You will never fall. You will not 
fall and lapse from this state of grace. You will stay far. In this way, there will be richly provided for you. You don't earn it yourself. It's provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paragraph 2, if you'll look back to your text there, paragraph 2 says that the perseverance of the saints depends not on their own free will. That's good. Because <laughs> if it depended on our free will, our choices, we'd probably respond with choices that were not able to avail, able to accomplish it. But on the unchangeableness of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. In 2 Timothy 2.19, Paul says, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are His. So the work of grace from which we will not fall is not of our own will, it's not of our own doing, but it's God knowing for whom He foreknew those He did predestine. It isn't God knowing what you will do or not do. Some think that it means that God knows you'll believe, so He predestines you, He chooses you, He elects you. The Bible doesn't say it's God knows what you'll do. He says God knows you. It's personal for whom He foreknew. And so this is based on the electing love of God the Father. But it's a triune work. God the Son is involved as well. And especially the intercession of the Son is found in John 17, 6, 7, 8, and 9. In fact, that whole chapter is it the intercessory work of Jesus for His own. But listen to just a few verses there. I have, this is the, the Lord talking to the Father in His prayer. I have manifested Your name to the people whom You gave me. That's election. Who You gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and You gave them me. And they have kept Your word. Now they know that everything that You have given me is from You. For I have given them the words that You gave me. And he says, I do not ask for these only, but for all those who believe in me through their word. And on and on and on in this passage, you can see the Lord Jesus on earth, in the garden, before the cross, interceding for his own. And the Bible tells us that he has ascended and is at the right hand of the Father bearing intercession for us now. There's a second thing we can count on. Not only the electing love of God to keep us, but the intercessory work. Every time the accuser comes before the Lord, like he did in the days of Job, and said, look at that sin. That's a horrible sin. They deserve death for that. Jesus, our advocate, will step forward and say, yes, that is a horrible sin. It was so horrible that I had to go to the cross and I died for it. And I paid the price for it. I suffered for it. And so, Father, put that sin on my account. Father, 
remove that sin as far as the east is from the west. Jesus says, Father, plunge it into the deepest sea and remember it no more. That's what the Lord does with our sins when we're in the state of grace. When we by faith have come to Him and received that. We must hurry on. Not only the work of the Father, but the work of the Spirit, but the work the work of the Son, but the work of the Spirit. In John 14, we've used this passage many times. Jesus said, I will ask the Father and He will give you a helper or a counselor, an advocate to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot see. You know Him for He dwells with you and will be in you. We have the Spirit dwelling within us. And that's really what this next paragraph says. Not for their own free will, but for the unchangeable, unchangeableness of the degree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ. That's what we just saw. And the remaining of the Spirit and the seed of God within Him. And the nature of the covenant of grace. So far we've looked at New Testament passages, but if you want to find something out about the covenant of grace, you need to turn to the Old Testament. You need to go to Jeremiah and hear the words of the promise that God gave to Jeremiah about what he would do with his new covenant people. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way. Isn't that interesting? Way back in the Old Testament, one way. Remember that back in the 60s, you know, all the people, one way, one way of salvation. Christ says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That comes out of Jeremiah. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. The children are always included in the covenant. That's why we baptize children. Not to regenerate them. Not to even say that they're professing any kind of faith. We don't baptize upon profession of faith. We baptize upon the eternal oath of God. We don't baptize because a person says, I have faith. We baptize because God says, I bestow faith and grace and all. Their own good and the good of the children, I will make with them an everlasting covenant, and I will not turn away from doing good to them. We lose our salvation when and only when God quits operationally saving us. God decides He doesn't want to save us anymore and rescue us and keep us and preserve us. And Christ doesn't want to intercede for us anymore. And the Spirit says, You know, I'm fed up, I'm getting out of the heart, I'm leaving them. When that happens, we'll lose our salvation. But until then, we are safe. We are preserved by the Lord. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in the land of faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. That's why the gospel is good news. It's God at work doing us good, keeping His promises, planting us in the land of faithfulness. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Putting us in the state of grace and keeping us there by His divine power and by His divine purpose and work. Well, let's hurry on and look at the very last statement. The nature of the covenant of grace from all of which arise with the certainty and the infallibility of it. 
Now let me close by reading that, second, that last paragraph. And I won't cite the scripture references that are given in our confession, but you would be wise to get your copy at home and look them up. Nevertheless, uh-oh, here's the, here's the clause. <laughs> here's the nevertheless clause. Nevertheless, God's people may through, and it's the three things we know, it's the world, the flesh, and the devil, through the temptations of Satan and of the world and the prevalence of the corruption remaining in them and the neglect of the means of their preservation. Did you know there's ways, there's means that God uses to keep us preserved? One of them is he gives us dire warnings that says if we don't follow him and don't flee sin and don't mortify the flesh and don't call upon him, we won't be saved. Paul made a prediction in the shipwreck. He said, everybody's going to be saved. But if you leave the boat and the planks off the boat, you won't be saved. He predicted they would all be saved, and they were. But the means is they clung to the float until they came to the shore. And that's what God does. One of the things he does is dire warnings. There are warnings in the Bible that ought to scare you to death. When you hear the Lord warn that one day he may say to you who are active ministers in the faith and have cast out demons and have prayed and preached, and he looks at you and says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. When he starts listing the sins and says, these sinners that have committed these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are dire warnings. When he tells us to be, to be careful lest we fall. Those are dire warnings. That's the means he uses to move us by his grace into the place where we are preserved by him. So let's don't get this teaching out of balance. Let's remember, fall into grievous sins. Says Christians may, they may fall into grievous sins and for a time continue in them. That's a wretched place to be, is to be a believer, but having fallen into a grievous sin and continue in them. But what happens when you're in that state? Whereby they incur God's displeasure. God's not happy with you and he lets you know it. And grieve his Holy Spirit. And come to be deprived of some of the measure of their graces and comforts have their hearts hardened. Listen to these consequences. And their consciences wounded. They may hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments on themselves. That's a terrible place to be. And Christians can get in that place. You're in the state of grace but you're under those consequences of your sin. Grievous sin, it speaks of. Brothers and sisters, loved ones, let's strive to enter the straight gate, knowing that the only way we'll ever get through the straight gate is to be standing upright. It's a constricted gate, it's narrow. You can't slouch through it. You can't crawl through it. 
you walk through it upright, having been made right by the righteousness of Christ given to you by grace. God who started a good work in you will complete it until the day 